Welcome to the latest episode of our COVID-19 Business in Focus podcast, where we explore the business impacts of coronavirus. I'm Rowena Morris, a director at PwC, and I help clients prepare and respond to crisis situations, and I'm your host for this series. Since our last episode on cybersecurity in April, many businesses have taken huge steps to protect against a new wave of cyber attacks that have emerged over the lockdown period. At first, it was a case of adapting quickly to new threats, but with many of us set to be operating this new environment for the foreseeable future, companies must think about their long-term approach. In this episode, we'll discuss how the cyber threat landscape has evolved since the beginning of lockdown, including how we've seen cyber criminals capitalize on the situation. We'll take a look at how businesses are responding to the increased threat activity and explore the potential conflict between investigative findings and the possibility of regulatory action. I'm delighted to be joined in our virtual studio today by my colleagues from our cyber business, Rachel Mullen and Chris McConkie. Hi, both. Hi, Rowena. Hey, Rowena. So thanks for joining us today. Um, to kick things off, Chris, how has the threat landscape evolved over the past few months? Has there been an increase in attacks? Good one to start with. Uh, short answer, yes. Uh, longer answer is yes and no. Um, so I'll, I'll try and explain a little bit about what I, uh, what I mean by that. And on the yes side, if we if we start with the, um, uh, the view that there has been an increase in attacks, there's definitely been an increase in the number of publicly reported incidents, particularly in the category of what we call, or generally what's known in the industry as human-operated ransomware. Um, so this is, is typically not the sort of opportunistic ransomware where somebody clicks a, a dodgy link in a phishing email, suddenly one system gets encrypted and the ransom is, I don't know, $200 or um, sort of point something of a, of a bit, Bitcoin to get it back. Um, this is typically much more of a full-blown network intrusion where the initial access to the networks by the bad guys is typically established weeks or months before those attacks are actually made public um, and, and the ransomware is triggered or before they're identified by the, by the victim. Um, you know, we've definitely seen see more of those in 2020 targeting some specific sectors um, and some of those just as an example healthcare public services local authorities and some manufacturing and construction organizations in the mix as well um, so that's definitely one of the things that's ramped up obviously whenever those kick in they're pretty obvious um, and, and pretty uh, disruptive and so they're actually quite hard to keep out of the public domain uh, but one really frustrating trend that means a lot more of those are becoming public is that a bunch of the bad guys behind it are actually setting up leak sites specifically to post stolen data that they've taken from their victims. So it's no longer just a business continuity issue within the organization um, where some systems are encrypted. It's actually the added impact of the uh, exfiltrated data actually being leaked by the bad guys as part of their uh, kind of blackmail uh, and strong arming uh, techniques. So just a couple of examples of that. In December 2019, uh, the threat actor in control of one of the, the ransomware families that is known as um, Sodina Kibi or Revil uh, began stealing data from victim networks uh, before the ransomware, uh, before they pushed out their ransomware. And then they posted links to that stolen data on a private Russian-speaking dark web forum. Uh, in January 2020, uh, the actors behind a different malware uh, ransomware family called Maze took that one step further. They actually set up a semi-public website to post stolen data. So if victims didn't um, kind of cooperate with their demands, uh, whenever a certain time then elapsed, the, the bad guys actually started publishing data that they'd taken. Um, so since, since then, since um, the start of 2020, 
um, we've seen about 12 additional ransomware groups um, that have done roughly the same thing, created their own leak sites. Uh, and it looks like a bit of a trend now where because some of them are being so successful, we've got other people then following the same, um, same pattern. So by the end of, of June, um, so just a, a few weeks ago, uh, over 200 organizations uh, around the world have had some stolen data published on those types of leak sites, again, presumably because they didn't cooperate uh, with the actor's demands. Uh, and a majority of those, so roughly 60% of those 200, um, are, occurred after the 11th of March, which is when the World Health Organization declared uh, COVID-19 uh, to be a, a global pandemic. Uh, and of those, about 70% of them were leaked after the 23rd of March, which is when lockdown commenced in the UK. So definitely seeing more of that stuff become public, definitely seeing a lot of it associated um, with uh, the COVID-19 kind of topic generally and, and the sectors involved in a lot of the response to COVID-19. Um, as I alluded to at the start, um, in some ways, uh, there's not actually an increase. So if I change tact a little bit, a lot of the other types of threat activity, so espionage as, as an example, is just continuing as normal. And many of the usual suspects um, in, in that uh, side of, of things are really just continuing to go after their traditional targets. And that spans both public and private sectors. So we've seen a bunch of those um, espionage or APT groups and their targeting line up with topics that do relate to the pandemic, such as vaccines. But that's exactly what we would expect to see um, because those groups are basically intelligence gathering tools who are being instructed in line with the needs and the will of their country. And that's exactly what we've seen happen in response to other types of high profile global topics in the past. So slightly long winded way of saying yes, in, in some ways we're seeing an increase uh, and in other areas we're seeing exactly what we, we would expect to see. And really interesting to hear those stats as well. So saying about those 200 organisations. Rachel, what do you think might have caused this increase in threats? And why are these big breaches hitting the public domain? Well, we think there's probably a number of factors at play behind uh, the activity that's being reported on or are released into the public domain. But if we begin with, I guess, the, the ransomware side of things, as Chris mentioned, there's been a, a sort of, these have become very high profile, certainly within the last three months. Uh, and one of the reasons that, might account for sort of the increase in activity that is essentially being conducted by actors that are motivated by financial gain um, will be things like the reduced spending or the shifts in the way uh, the consumers spend. So if you think about some of those cyber criminals that would traditionally go after credit card details, they're having to find new income sources. And as Chris has already uh, alluded to, there has been an increase in the number of ransomware actors in the first half of 2020, which then leads on to also increasing uh, the number of incidents that you start to see. Um, one of the other factors that might be influencing the increase in activity in the ransomware side of uh, the house is that ransom demands and therefore the associated revenues that you sort of see um, alongside this is growing. Um, and that's encouraging uh, other actors to enter the market. Additionally, we've got cyber insurance policies that are regularly covering ransom payment payments, uh, which actors are aware of, and they're exploiting this source of funding. If we look as well, uh, so COVID-19 has impacted um, everyone as a whole, uh, in particular organizations are, are feeling the impact quite heavily. Organised crime groups are likely seeing this as an opportunity to target organisations that may be in desperate situations. 
As Chris mentioned, many of the ransomware operations, particularly the human operator ones, are now stealing data from their victims before encrypting their victims' files and then threatening to release or auction that data on leak sites if the victims don't agree to their ransom demands. And it's possible that this increased level of coercion that, that then comes into play may also be encouraging a greater percentage of victims to pay ransom demands and thereby creating a fairly vicious circle. But as Chris mentioned, there's there's the other side of the house where it's the activity we're seeing is, is very much business as usual. And if we look at the sort of the various stages of a cyber attack, one of the really early 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 parts of a cyber attack will be reconnaissance, um, which is what the actors are doing to try to identify vulnerabilities and ways into networks and systems. And opportunistic reconnaissance is a fairly uh, common uh, trend among a variety of different threat actors um, looking to conduct various different types of cyber attacks. The sort of the rapid shift that we experienced in the move to remote working practices potentially might have broadened the attack service that's available um, and that can potentially be picked up um, when this opportunistic reconnaissance is being played out. Um, or there potentially might be some new vulnerabilities that have come into effect as a result of some of the shifts that have occurred. If we look as well at the sort of the more uh, the type of activity where it's more about uh, information gathering, um, so the other side of the coin, uh, espionage actors are typically operating for governments um, with particular objectives in mind, uh, and there's a, a variety of different factors that come into play in, in any of those types of attacks. And the current political and economic climate that we're existing in, in terms of particularly with the impact of COVID-19, will definitely be impacting and influencing the types of attacks and the activity that we're seeing. So while the targeting itself may be in line with usual practices, there may be shifts in what the types of uh, information that is therefore being uh, looked for. Uh, so if we, even if we look back over the last few months, there's certainly been a number of um, shifts um, in terms of bilateral and multilateral relationships um, and a range of different events that have occurred that will be potentially driving the types of activity that we're seeing. That's a really helpful summary. Thank you, Rachel. So, Chris, what's the impact of all of these threats? Honestly, really widespread. Um, and uh, it's, there's such variation at the minute, not, not just in the nature of the threats, but actually how organisations are geared up to respond to them. So we've seen, if you take, I mean, I'll stick with that human-operated oper human ransomware topic that I was um, mentioning uh, a little bit earlier. We've seen the same group go after different organizations and obviously be able to carry out the ransomware um, deployment that they'd intended to do, but actually the impact on the, the victim was very, very different. Um, one, uh, able to bounce back very quickly from it, really good backups, um, really slick processes being able to recover. Uh, and in other instances, just completely unprepared or um, literally the bad guys able to find some little misconfiguration in something that means they can wipe out far more in the organization and then it makes it much more difficult for them to, to recover from. So the impact is generally really, really varied and really widespread um, at the moment. Um, and I guess if, if I stick again with that, that topic, um, that human operated ransomware stuff is generally actually part of a, a much bigger organized crime ecosystem. Um, and the interesting thing about it is a lot of those big um, uh, kind of cyber crime syndicates are often associated with malware families that used to be viewed as quite commodity. Like if you've got a, a malware family that's being 
distributed via spam to millions and millions of users every day. You used to assume that stuff was was pretty opportunistic, pretty commodity. Um, what's really interesting now is whenever those um, commodity malware families get a foothold in a network, um, it's not that they're unsophisticated. Um, they're actually just widespread, but they can be very, very sophisticated. And some of that sophistication means that they're actually very good at fingerprinting what network they're in. So they can actually... I mean, the bad guys are probably sitting looking at a dashboard with a bunch of metrics on it that say, hey, I'm in this network. Here's the company I think it's associated with. Here's how many systems I've got access to. Here are the, the privileges of the accounts that I've got access to. And are then using that to fuel their monetization schemes. So they can basically sell off chunks of really interesting networks to the highest bidders that then um, use that access to carry out the ransomware uh, deployment. So we're seeing this really interesting ecosystem and affiliate schemes where they're basically trading access to different environments. Um, but that means the commodity stuff or what we used to think of commodity stuff can become targeted very, very quickly because all it takes is one sale um, of some of those big widespread malware families um, and, and selling the access of that to a group that's going to do something really, really destructive. Um, and that destructive stuff is, is literally, it's run by humans. And, and quite often in cyber attacks, we forget there's a human at the other end of these things. And that means there is intent and a lot of consideration put into how they get the maximum return for their effort. And so if you think about ransomware, where the, the, the ransom demands can be in the millions, the bad guys want to exert as much pressure as possible to encourage a victim to pay that ransom as quickly as possible. And that means they can spend days, weeks, months in an, inside an organization, mapping it out, understanding all of the critical systems, understanding how to deploy uh, the ransomware most widely and most uh, rapidly before they actually go go about doing it. And then you've got a very limited window to stop the ransomware whenever it's it's actually kicked off before the, the impact kicks in. Um, and quite often that means organizations immediately lose critical business functions like finance systems, network file shares, internal SharePoint systems, all of those types of things that they use basically to run the business. Um, and so dealing with getting that back on track is then compounded by these guys that have, have taken some data out of the network and are also threatening to, to leak it online. Um, and then that obviously adds a, a bit of pressure from an information regulator perspective, or if it's, let's say, it's, it's sensitive patient data, or if it's intellectual property or something like that, there's a whole bunch of issues that, that come to the fore if that info gets leaked publicly. Um, and organizations, obviously, in the midst of a pandemic, don't also want their ability to protect customer and employee data coming into question, um, given all of the reputational um, issues that, that come with it as well. Um, but it's really, I guess, highlighting that as I said at the start of this answer, some organizations can bounce back from this stuff really quickly, but a large majority are still really struggling, and particularly for those human-operated ransomware campaigns. Um, it's it's a kind of weeks or months-long effort to, to get a business back to normal um, after the back of it. Um, and so there's a real focus on, um, for example, like detection and response as a, as a general topic area in cybersecurity. As I said before, these guys are often in networks for weeks or months before they actually trigger the ransomware. And that's a window. It's co commonly known as the, a, a dwell time in the industry. So how long were the bad guys there before they, they achieved their objectives? A lot of that detection and response focus is not on preventing them getting a foothold, but minimizing that dwell time so that once they're in, you've got a, a, a really rapid um, 
uh, effectively technology and, and, and personnel ecosystem is able to find them and then do something about it. Um, and there's some also really uh, good, what we describe as tactical work packages uh, that help organizations fix some of the hard basics that have a, a really disproportionate impact on any bad guy's ability to achieve, achieve their objectives inside a network. Um, there's some great government guidance on stuff like this. Um, and the UK's put out some of it. The Australian Signals Directorate um, has a set of guidelines called the Essential It, which is a, is a, is a great read from a, a security practitioner's perspective. Um, but I also have to usually give the, the Aussies a shout out whenever I'm, I'm doing something like this with, uh, with Rachel to keep her happy as well. <laughs> So I think the question most people will be asking themselves after hearing all of that, and thanks for that, Chris, that summary, is what are those top tips for organisations looking to protect themselves right now? So you mentioned the essential eight, but what else should people be thinking about? And maybe, Rachel, if we could start with you. Sure. So I think if we think back to sort of that human factor, so it's not just the human operated ransomware um, activity that we're seeing, but humans can often be, play a part in the defence of their networks. So making sure that your employees and staff are aware of um, what sorry, suspicious activity might look like and how they might be targeted during this uh, pandemic um, would certainly be a valuable start. Um, a lot of the campaigns that we've tracked have followed the news cycles um, around the pandemic. So beginning with the sort of the shift and the spread of, of, of COVID-19, moving on to sort of the measures that were being put in place to help uh, prevent it, so PPE, um, and, and now we're sort of seeing a lot of the stuff that's more related to things like government relief me measures and financial um, relief measures as well. So making sure people are aware of what that kind of activity might look like will help them potentially identify what could be suspicious activity. So opening a, an attachment or clicking on a link that perhaps maybe they shouldn't. Um, another one is uh, if we consider that some of the operators behind some of this activity look to automate it as much of it as they can when they can see um, efficiencies within that. Um, we should also be making sure that we're uh, looking beyond the, the type of activity that we actively uh, know is, is bad and looking for things uh, that are potentially suspicious or anomalous. So actively monitoring and threat hunting rather than simply relying on known bad indicators. And Chris, how about you? What are your top tips? Well, some of them, I guess, mesh pretty well with what Rich has just said. So I guess a few a few quick ones from me. Um, first, ensuring that any new technology deployments for remote working are securely configured. Um, a lot of those have been stood up really quickly, probably worth actually taking a look, making sure that they're actually generating really good telemetry that can be used for security monitoring and that they're actually um, securely configured in the first place. Um, and I guess some of that also applies to existing controls that might be circumvented due to remote working. I'm just thinking over the last few months, our incident response team has investigated a bunch of different breaches at different organizations who don't usually work that much remotely, but where the root cause control failure of the breach was actually the corporate web proxy being bypassed due to what's known as split tunneling on the VPN. It basically means when a user's um, uh, working from uh, home or outside of the corporate network, um, their laptop can go straight to the internet rather than through the, the corporate network controls. And as a consequence, that meant a whole bunch of bad stuff wasn't picked up and has resulted in some pretty significant breaches. Um, secondly, Rich has already alluded to it, so basically focusing on countering those opportunistic threats um, by really aggressively monitoring for suspicious activity across the whole of the IT estate um, with a real focus on endpoint coverage. Um, and in this day and age, really, if you don't have some sort of I don't know, next-gen antivirus or EDR product um, in place, you're effectively flying blind. And the whole point of this is trying to catch any of those 
what we we describe as commodity malware but which can be which can turn into targeted things really quickly uh, and actually being able to then weed those out of the environment um Points three and four that I'll pick up on are, are really linked. And um, point three is around incident response strategy and actually having a a plan and b a partner to to call on if you need to uh, and you need somebody to help you execute that plan. Um, and it's really important in, the, in this space um, that that's not just a technical um, provider. That should really be somebody who can match you pound for pound all the way from the security operations center to the office of the general counsel through to the boardroom um, to help orchestrate a, a really effective response across the whole uh, the whole spectrum. Um, and then linked to that as well, get somebody to run you through a case study or a simulation so that you can learn from firsthand experience about all the various pitfalls and issues that even the most experienced organizations in the world um, often fall into. Because um, there's actually some really surprising stuff can sometimes come out um, in the, the heat of the moment in, in these types of incidents that will will grind most people's incident response plans to a halt. So it's, it's worth knowing stuff like that in advance. Some really interesting and useful top tips there. Thanks so much, Chris and Rachel. And of course, thanks to everyone for listening. You can find all of our latest cybersecurity insights on our cyber homepage at pwc.co.uk forward slash cybersecurity. Thanks, everyone, and see you next time.